It's our Mega Auction Strategy Tips and Tricks episode. From the nuts and bolts of preparation to the nomination process, bidding, and everything in between. And we have expert Steve Gardner of USA Today, organizer of the labor auctions, to help us navigate through all of these topics. One of our most highly requested shows of the season, an all-strategy episode, your Beat the Shift auction podcast is next. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruben Guy. How are you, Ruben? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Pitchers and catchers have already reported. Baseball is right underway. Can't wait. I'm even playing a pickup softball game on Sunday, I think. We're going to try it out. So, yeah, I'm excited. I think it's a little too early for that. We're not in Florida. We're not in Arizona. It's a little, I mean, it was beautiful the last couple of days, but it's supposed to get chilly again. It's not spring yet. Well, if the temperature is over 50, I'll take it. So uh, what the heck? Uh, you know, maybe I'll pitch about uh, two, three innings just to get started. Uh, got to start somewhere, you know? <laughs> you know? That's so, true. Uh, there That's you go. true. Well, we've got a fantastic show today. We're going to do our auction strategy episode. A lot of you guys have asked for this rely on this. So we're going to talk all things auction strategy. So hopefully you will be prepared for your upcoming one. If you haven't tried an auction yet, you definitely should. And to help us with that, we've got USA Today's Steve Gardner. How are you doing, Steve? Welcome. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. I'm looking forward to this. It's a, a great opportunity to kind of get the ball rolling in terms of uh, getting ready for auctions. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and the labor auctions are going to be in just a little bit over two weeks from now in sunny Florida. I plan to be there, and uh, it's going to be a great weekend. Looking forward to that, Steve. It's amazing. It's it's already at hand. We've got the lineups all set, um, and uh, I just I, I can't wait. Labor is one of the best weekends of the year, and uh, we have such a great group, and it's going to be you know not only – the labor auctions, but we also have Baseball HQ's First Pitch Florida conference that's going on. So, so much, so much info and uh, strategy and everything to soak up in one weekend. It, it should be outstanding. And they're one of the first auctions of the year, so they actually set the tone for the rest of the auctions throughout the year. Indeed. And that's that was, I, I think that was really kind of one of the founding principles of labor is... Uh, went back in 1994 to just set the bar, put those values out there. And um, so that you can look at that if you're in an auction league and, and kind of see where, you know, your league might go with, with some of the values that, uh, that the experts and industry folks have. I definitely recommend uh, checking out the values when it's done and either come to Florida or you can also listen on Sirius XM fantasy radio. We'll be broadcasting the auctions live. So, Check that out uh, in about two weekends, and uh, let's let's talk about auction strategy. We've got a lot of questions. A lot of people sent in mailbag questions, and we'll weave them into the show as we talk about topics. But let's just start really, really simple, Steve, and throw it out to you. How do you prepare for an auction, and how does it differ from your preparation of a snake draft? 
Well, I think both of them, you know, I, I look at the, the players in their positions and who qualifies where and kind of get a sense of the player pool. But uh, the great thing about the auction is that everybody's in play. You know, uh, I, it's been said many times before in a snake draft, if you know what your draft position is, there are a good chunk of, of players, very good players in the first couple rounds, you know you're going to have no shot at getting. And uh, at least in an auction, you have the possibility. There's so many different strategy lines and, and, and ways that you can approach it that uh, it, it makes it so much fun because you never know what's going to happen. You look at some of the, you know, the, the early drafts and, and some of the, um, the NFBC drafts, you're going to see the same five guys get taken first for the most part. Um, in an auction, that's out the window. You can, you can play it any way you want. And I think that's what really has, uh, you know, those of us who've, who've been doing this for a while, uh, that's why we love auctions, because everyone has its own type of personality. Ruvain, what's your general uh, preparation for an auction, and how does that differ from snakes? Basically, for for snake drafts, you know what the ADP is going to be. You can look it up. You can see where everyone's usually going. But just like Steve said, in an auction, everyone's on the table. Everyone's available to you. Um, you can make a better plan. You can have an idea of who you want to get up and how it fits into that big puzzle of your whole roster. You have to make a budget for each position. You have to know how much you want to spend for each position. You have to know where you can find the what we're going to talk about later, probably the hot spots where you want to jump in where you want to attack the draft where you want to be more aggressive because when it comes to a snake draft if you're on the corner if you're on the turn or anything like that you have to be more aggressive in an auction you can be aggressive too but it's a different type of aggression you can it can change the way you do things in, a, in, a, in an auction you can intimidate people especially if it's a live auction you can actually intimidate some people the way you bid on players so there's certain ways that an, an auction draft is a lot different than a snake draft and i actually prefer the auction because it gives you more control over your general team and how you want your team to look because listen you're drafting a team now in in february march whenever it is you're going to be with the bulk of those players for the next six months you get to pick who you want to be on your team for the next six months yeah 100 percent. i agree with everything so far and you know to add to that in a snake draft you have to buy one first rounder you have to buy a second rounder one third rounder one fourth rounder don't have to do that in an auction. You can have three first-rounders if you so choose. You can have zero first-rounders. You can, you can do a lot of things. It's more flexible. So how does the preparation work? Well, in general, my preparation is calculate my values of players, estimate what the market's paying for them. You can find who's undervalued. And it's not just any particular players. We like to group pockets of players, like hotspots, as we, we call them. If you have a number of players in a certain region of the same position, or same statistic works too, um, group them together. If there's four first basemen that have the same value and are a bargain according to the market, well, I'm indifferent to getting any one of them, but I have a better chance of getting someone in there undervalued. If you say, I really, really want Vinny Pasquantino, well, if you have another guy who loves Vinny Pasquantino, you're not going to get it. But if you have, is it Pasquantino and Nate Lowe and a whole bunch of players, you'll be more likely to get that. Uh, and then I put the plan together. For auction, the plan is look at the dollar points. For Snake, it's a little bit different because you have to deal with some roster construction. I basically work more backwards in a Snake where I'm looking at, okay, I can get these players in the ninth round, these players in the 12th, 
So that means my first and second round choices will have to be X. Don't have to do that in the auction. I just look for all the combinations up high and up low that I think are hot spots all over the place. Uh, we have a question from Ryan who asks, and I'll, I'll change the question a little bit, but you know, how do you tackle position scarcity in an auction versus snake? Are you more willing to punt a position in an auction than you are in a snake? How do you answer that, Steve? Well, I, I think yes and no. I mean, it, there are different ways to do it. I, I think it's, it's one of the things is you can prepare maybe a little bit better for punting a position or uh, attacking a particular position a little bit better in an auction because, you know, at least for me, I have a spreadsheet and I have projected amounts that I want to spend for, you know, not necessarily each particular roster spot, but for each group of positions like uh, first base, third base, corner infield. You know, I will group those three together and say, I want to spend somewhere around $50 for that those three, you know, something along those lines. So if I have a position that is scarce, you know, maybe I want to budget a little bit more to that. And if, you know, for instance, all those guys go maybe above what I'm willing to pay, then I can shift and say, okay, I, I don't, don't want to go there. I can move this money to somewhere else and, and look at it this way. I think we also have to remember that not only is there position scarcity, there's also category scarcity. And we have to, as, as you were talking, as, when you're making a plan, you have to kind of figure out how you're going to attack all of those scarce areas um, and how they overlap so that you can develop a plan and, and be able to you know, divert from that if and when you need to. Ruben, I'll ask you this question first. How does online auctions differ from in-person auctions? Any strategy differences or uh, logistic differences for you? Uh, yeah, there are a lot. And this this showed its face on, during the COVID year when we didn't have many live auctions. A lot of them were online. You know, it's not you don't get the same feel. You don't get the same camaraderie. When you have a live auction, you have an interaction with the rest of the players. You have an interaction with the auctioneer. You have an interaction with everybody who are just following the entire auction. It's just a lot more fun, number one. Number two, when it comes to a live auction, you can actually control the room a lot better than when you're doing it online. When you're online, you can make bids and you can try to push people around with their, with their money. But when you're making bids in person, you can use different um ways you ways you bid you can be louder you can bid softer you can wait to the end and you know you can also see tells it's like being in a poker it's like like playing online poker and poker in person you can see if someone's going after someone you can see if they have any tells like they're gonna say oh you know what i see this guy's gonna go for it he's pushing he's pushing you can't really tell that when you're online because you can't you, you don't have the same their nuances that you miss when you're online compared to being in person yeah, you you, you uh, draft against Jeff Zimmerman, and you just stare at him, and you, you know when he's going to bid and when he's not going to bid. I have no idea what he's doing online. I can't really see through the computer, so that's a very, very big thing. You know what I will say? Can I, can I, I throw something in real quick? Is one of the things that I learned is that you can't wait till the last second when you're in an online auction because there's a chance that the computer may not take your bid, um, you could get a bid in, you think, and your internet connection messes with you and you don't get it in. That's, that's one of those where certainly it's a lot easier when you're in person to be able to just sort of take your time and drag it out maybe till the last second, use a little psychological strategy, 
you definitely can't do that uh, if you're doing an online auction. 100%. But, of course, you can't complain about the computer glitching if you do an if you do an in-person auction, right? <laughs> oh, that CBS software, <laughs> it made us buy this guy, right? You can't complain about it. No, that, that's a very big difference, you notice. Uh, I'll actually say this. Um, I think that working with a partner is far more important in an online auction. And I'll tell you why. Because when I'm doing an online auction, I'm looking at the screen for my player values and whatever my draft software is that I'm using. But I also have to look at the computer for what the biddings are going and who's up, right? It's two screens i got to look at. I don't have to do that when I'm in person. I hear what the bids are, and I say what the bids are. I don't have to click on a mouse. Uh, so it's easier to maneuver and far more important to have a partner in not, – not that it's not important to have a partner. I, I enjoy having it as well. But in, in, in person, you, know, you at least can see and hear everything. Very hard to maintain, I think. Uh, or harder to maintain with a computer. Um, what what is the difference, Steve? Because uh, you you do a lot of mono leagues. How does your strategy change in general in an auction for AL NL only versus mixed? I'll tell you. I, I think the the deeper the leagues, the more you have to be so familiar with the end game and the last you know, the, the last one third or, or whatever fraction you want to talk about um, of the of the player pool. You have to know, because those guys, a lot of times, those last few picks, those reserve picks are the ones that can be, you know, huge values for you. Um, lot, a lot of leagues are won and lost in some of those end game guys. So I think just being so... Uh, familiar as familiar as you can possibly be with those last few people that will be drafted um, is 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 the biggest because you, it, you're not going to get uh, as much on the free agent market during the season. I mean, you're much more locked into your team that you draft in an AL or NL only league um, from the start than you are with a mixed league where you can pick up guys there's there's often um players who are are decent and will be valuable for you during the season you can pick up on the waiver wire so the the depth of the league um is what makes it challenging and you know makes it really what makes it fun for us yeah and thanks to regarfield uh six for uh submitting this question uh we'll talk about it later but uh i think that the um Mono leagues also lend more towards the spread the risk versus stars and scrubs, and pretty much for the reason that you said, Steve, that the waiver wire is more barren. If you're doing stars and scrubs, that really uh, facilitates more use of the waiver wire because you're $1 players, you might cycle more. But in a mono league, you want to spread the risk a little bit more. Um, you want to also minimize, I think, minimize dollar bids. You know, you want to get $3 is like your final pick. I find that that's the better uh, strategy in AL, NL only. And also hitter-pitcher split probably tilts a little bit more towards hitting. Now, you mentioned fab, and I'll go to you first, Ruvain. You know, how does the way that you draft uh, affect your in-season fab usage? Like, is this and, – and, and do you strategize about – the difference between, you know, draft capital versus fab capital. Are you planning everything all together before you uh, strategize for your auction? 
No, I don't think so. I think the fab, the way you ban- manage your fab budget is me based on how you draft. When you draft, you'll know whether or not you have um, a strengths and weaknesses in certain areas. If you know you're weak in power and need to get power, you're going to spend more money on power on the fab. If you know you're weaker in pitching, you're going to spend more money on, pi- on pitching. That's that's the best way to go about it. Or you can do it the reverse. If you have a trading league and you're in an auction league, then you can actually you know, strengthen your your position even more during the draft and know that, say, you know what, I'll spend my fab and we strengthen even more so I can trade during the course of the season. There are different ways to go about it, but I don't think you, can, you should really go into the draft thinking about how you're going to use your fab because you don't know how you're going to do it until, how, until you see how your roster is constructed. Once you see how your roster is constructed, then you can plan your fab accordingly. Do you agree with that, Steve? Um, yeah, for the most part, I think one area where you can do that and plan your in-season fab usage is with a closer. And, you know, it's a lot more difficult these days um, to get more than one closer to get saves if you don't pay for them. I think a lot of a lot of folks that are going to be drafting this year are going to have to make decisions about do I spend up for you know, the Edwin Diaz's and Josh Hader's of the world, um, or do I just back off and not pay that high price? And I think that's one of the things that you can certainly address in FAB after the season starts. Once we see bullpens a little bit more settled, who's going to be the, you know, the A closer versus the B closer in a committee. Um, I, I think that's the one area where you can sort of strategize, okay, if I'm not going to pay a whole lot for closers, and saves, um, I'll go ahead and spend. Or, you know, the, the reverse of that is true too. I don't want to spend all of my fab during the season fishing for closers every week. I want to get somebody and just lock in that closer and be good with them, and I can spend my fab on on everything else. They're definitely, uh, definitely both uh, strategies are, are you know equally valid. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I think closers are a big thing that you just need to know what your plan is. And, hey, if, you know, it looks like you're going to have to spend fab, maybe you do something a little bit different for the rest of your roster during the auction. Just something to be aware of there. And you know there will be saves on the waiver wire during the season. You can't guarantee that there will be power, will be stolen bases, uh, wins that you can pick up. You know that there will be saves on the waiver wire. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that you have to do for yourself, and you have to see which is cheaper to get, which is more bountiful, uh, your draft capital for some statistic or your draft capital for some position versus your fab capital, right? It's, a, it's an opportunity cost, and you have to really judge that for yourself going into every single auction and make yourself aware of, well, if I don't do this, I have to do this in fab. So I think it is something that you do have to consider. Um, Steve, how do you prepare yourself mentally for the auction before then? I, I know our buddy uh, Ian Khan goes into room and meditates for a while. Um, I, I don't do that. I just show up at an auction. I'm, I'm a pretty calm guy in general, so I just uh, show up, and I've done this before. I go to the bathroom, take a drink, and that's it. Is there anything that you do before an auction? Not particularly. Um, I mean, I will, I will know my spreadsheet in and out. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to have something where you you know you know where everything is you know how everything adds up um you've got the numbers where you can easily manipulate them as as long as you feel i i feel like as long as you feel comfortable that you've done your homework going into the auction it should you should just you should allow your mind to be free 
and go with whatever direction the auction goes in and be prepared to, to change your plan if you need to. But um, in terms of preparing mentally, um, I, I feel like if I've done my homework, then everything will work out uh, as, as well as it can once I get in that auction room. Anything you do special, Ruven? Relax, have fun, enjoy. This is the highlight of the season for a lot of people. Just like opening day is a highlight of the season for a lot of major league teams because they're not going to have a chance. The draft and the auction is the highlight of a lot of leagues because everyone is still in it. You can you can take a deep take a deep breath, make sure you're well caffeinated, especially because I know we do an, a 9 a.m. auction. Auction to do that, you have to be wide awake. You have to get a good night's sleep the night before if you're going to do that. Try not to stay out drinking too much, you know, the night before, because I know some people have done that in our league before. Um, so you know, it, it, just relax. There's nothing to be scared of. Everyone's on the same playing field. Everyone has the same amount of money to start with. There's nothing to be worried about. Just go into it and feel confident that you know your stuff. Ruben, you reminded me of something too. When um, when we go to, to New York City for Tout Wars, one of the things that I absolutely love is when I am walking from wherever I'm staying to wherever the draft is, that early morning or midday walk just to clear your mind and you know maybe have some tunes on in, in the old uh, earbuds, but that little 15 minutes or however long it takes I think is is a great way to just get prepared and get everything you know uh, everything extraneous out of your mind and start thinking about uh, about your draft. I like to go over and talk to the people uh, just like I would do before a poker game and get them used to my voice and uh, sort of have me fade in the background of them subliminally. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, <laughs> I tell people I hypnotize people, but it's true. I mean, that's what you do in a poker room. You know, if you want to get people to bet a certain way, you, you talk to them before uh, you, you get them comfortable, comfortable with you. Um, so I, I recommend talking to people. Uh, it also calms you down. You know, you don't think about the draft for a little bit. You just just chat with them, ask them about their day or ask them about something extraneous. Uh, maybe get them off their game. Uh, you never know. Uh, that's what I do. Um, what What should you do during the breaks between, uh, it, you know, in the middle of the auction? That That's even more important. I mean, I, I generally, you know, take the time, obviously go to the bathroom, of course, but I, I like to sum up where I am, reset, see what positions I need, see what uh, value I have left, prioritize. It's all, To me, it's all about priority. Prioritize my, nomina my nominations coming up. Uh, what do you do, Steve, uh, uh, during your breaks? You know, I, I generally don't look at other people's rosters that closely during the auction. I'm more focused on what I need to do. And at the break, that gives me an opportunity to see where everybody else is. And, you know, I, I know where my team is. I kind of got an idea where my strengths and weaknesses are. I like to take that time to look at what everybody else is doing, who's got the most money left, who's got the most spots to fill, what positions, you know, maybe uh, possibly bidding wars, breaking out over as we get back to, to uh, the th everything else um, after the break is over. Um, that's a time for me to maybe do a little bit more scouting and then I can sort of say, okay, here's what I need to do going into this second portion of the draft or the second half of the draft. Um, it, it's, it's more of a scouting thing for me than, than, than a planning, really. Yeah. Anything to add, Ruben? 
Yes, you rebudget your money. You, if during an auction, you have a certain amount of money. You're going to know at, at the break, you'll see how much money other teams have left. Who are they going to be going after? Are you going after the same players? Are there players out there who are going to go first and they're going to be a bidding war right away? Some people may be desperate after the break, after looking at their own team, and they may want to go after that also. Who will have the hammer? Who do you think is going to have the hammer toward the end? All these things you can take out, you take a peek. And you know what? Speak to some of the players or speak to some of the players there also because they may give something away that they may not mean to, and you may be able to take an advantage with that. Now, so um, you mentioned, Steve, scouting and... Um, you know, my question to you is: Before your auction, do you scout the other players and see what they've pro- possibly have done in the past or what they're thinking of? And to add, to add to that, do other people's bidding and player tendencies affect the way that you would operate in the auction? I'll tell you, I don't really scout people as you would scout players. Uh, you know, on the field or anything like that and and see what their tendencies are. I sort of kind of absorb that, especially if you've been playing in a league for a long time. I think you kind of, you know, innately know where people will will push, where they'll pull back, that sort of thing. So I, I don't know that I make a conscious effort to do that. But when we get into, you know, perhaps a bidding war over somebody, um, that's when some of that knowledge will kick in. But I, I think that's maybe not something I'm very good at. I know, uh, in fact, one of the first pitch sessions in Florida, Ariel, you were talking about, you know, basically putting out a scouting report about this person likes to jump bid and this person likes to wait on closers and things like that. Um, the, I think that's really interesting. Um, I don't know that I would be very successful trying to figure that out because, you know, a lot of the best players will will kind of realize that and, and mix it up to throw you off your game sometimes. You know, I actually think they don't mix it up as much as they like to. Or, uh, you <laughs> they know, try I, to. They try to, but they can't. Um, well, yeah, but, like, for, for example, you know, I, I come to labor a couple years ago and we're playing against Ryan Hallam and he's wearing a – Paul Goldschmidt, Cardinals uniform. That tells me something about him, right? Uh, Or if I'm playing Tat Wars and I'm playing against uh, Paul Sporer, I take a look at what he's done the past two years in terms of hitter-pitcher split, and it's crazy, like 85-15. So that tells me I don't have to watch out for Paul at all during the thing because he ain't bidding on pitchers, and he's just going to clobber the deck on me and hitters, so don't even try to bid when he bids, right? That tells you something. Or I know Frank Stample is going to be involved in a lot of different, the same areas that I am. I got to be careful for him. So maybe I have to, in the middle of the auction, watch his roster and see who he's filled up uh, because he's going to be closer to where I'm going to bid than anybody else. I think knowing about the different players really important and planning. If you have a lot of people who you know go in a certain tier in pitching, I might try a different plan because I don't want to get price enforced on, on, on that certain tier. Um, I can't, I'm not going to say it's a must to do the scouting, but I think it really helps give an edge in terms of who to look out for. Because to me, when you're doing an auction, it's about economics in the room. And to know what is going to be more valued and less valued and what you have to watch out for and what bucket is more important, that just gives you a leg up forget about the players it gives you a leg up on the economics so and also also you have to see 
speak to them before the draft and see what type of systems they're using. Are they using the same system you are? Are you going to be going after the same players? That's also very important to know because if you if you know that right away, that, that doesn't hurt. Also, it doesn't hurt just to look at the players. I mean, you'll have a list of the other players in your league with you. It doesn't hurt just to look on social media just for a minute. You can befriend them. You know, maybe you can create a relationship that can be lasting for a long time, but you can also see which players they're more high on, and that may give you a little hint and a little help during the course of the draft. You know, what's going to be funny is that um, when we get to NL Labor, we have five new players out of 12 in NL. And that's going to be really interesting when we get Frank mentioned, Jeff Zimmerman is coming in, DJ Short from NBC Sports is coming in, uh, Jeff Pontus from Baseball America, and Ron Chandler. They're all new for this season in NL Labor. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how they blend in with the you know the veterans. Um, oh yeah, I, I can't wait for that. Yeah, I mean Derek Hardy is going to use his bat system. Ray Murphy is going to use Baseball HQ. You know, knowing what they're using sort of helps. Of course, that also hurts me personally. With you know, people know I'm using ATC, right? But you know, knowing that really that information really does help you. Um, you know, going going to the heart of things. When you're in an auction, you have to bid an amount, right? There's there's a, what you value a player at and what a strike price is, you know, what you're willing to pay for a player. Um, how do you come up with that, Steve? Because that, to me, is the crux of, of coming to an auction, right? You know, nobody's ever asked me about how I get my values for labor before. Um, but I'm going to tell you, and, and you're, you may kind of laugh at me, um, I basically take what happened last year and all of the values of all of the players in all of the at all of the positions and basically strip out the names and put names back in for this year's player pool and I fill out my sheet until it comes to the end of where the the dollar value you know the $1 players are and that's where I start and basically because it just it seems like every year in labor people will have a certain amount that they will go to they won't really go beyond that um and so i found that that's the easiest way for me especially you know for people who are in the same league over and over that's not a bad way to start and save time and then what you can do is then tweak those to where you know if there's a, a greater concentration of elite second baseman this year you can massage the numbers but either way no matter what you do you still have you know one total that you have whatever it, what is it 3160 or you know uh whatever the total is for all the 12 teams time 260 3120 it always has to add up to that much money is available and so that's where I start, and that's how I prepare for labor. All right, so basically you take your rankings and you take last year's values top to bottom and you sort of match them. Pretty much, yeah. Right, yes. Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, when, when I construct market values, that's what I do. I take the ADP and I just match it to whatever was done last year. Uh, if you have last year's auction, I mean, that's the best. Um, if not, you can come up with some formulas to, to, to approximate it. But, yeah, if you have last year's 
um, prices, then that's the best starting point. Um, I mean, for me, I, I, I use an, uh, an auction calculator type thing on my own values. I come up with the market values, and I look at, at the two. Um, I, I also talk that I risk-adjust prices, as I think that players, some are more risky, less risky, and their price has to be adjusted. I mean, to me, in terms of strike prices, um, in early on, you want to strike no greater than roughly what the player is worth, maybe a dollar or so more. Later on, your strike price has got to be a discount. In the middle, you need $2 off. At the very end, you need $6 off. You know, strike price follows a curve, I think. Yes, if you don't do that, exactly what you said, because we do, we've been doing this for years together. If you don't do that, you're going to be left with money left over. And you're going to be, oh, if you don't strike early, like you said, and pay a little bit more for the top values just because you have the money then, you may end up paying over or overpaying for the middle of the pack or the lower of the pack just because you have the money and just because you need to get rid of it because otherwise you're going to end up with leftover money at the end of the draft and that doesn't go toward your fab or anything. So there's no point in having leftover money. So if you don't go after those top few guys, yes, you could be conservative. Yes, you don't want to go over a certain value, but if you're too strict with it, you're going to have leftover money. Yeah, Robert asks. Uh, Robert uh, Ote asks a question: How much? How much will you overbid to get a player you want? And my answer is nothing, uh, unless there is a market premium. So if all the top starters are going three dollars over what I thought they might, I'm okay paying a dollar over because I'd, I'd rather pay a dollar over than three dollars over. I'll get. You know, I'll make up that dollar on the back end, but I don't want to, you know, veer too far. I certainly won't go, you know, $7 over player because you're just throwing money out. You never make up the $7 on the bottom. Uh, but in general, I won't overbid other than a market correction. Is that true for you, Steve? Or are you willing to overbid by a couple to get your guy? Well, the one, one time, uh, the one exception to that is, at least for my experience, if you're in a keeper league and there's keeper league inflation that requires you to do that um, and you have a need and you have to you know, pay extra to fill that particular slot. Um, I think we're talking mostly throughout the conversation tonight about redraft leagues where everybody's starting from scratch. I just had a, a keeper league uh, draft a couple of weeks ago and had a similar situation to where there were basically two catchers that were available um, at the top of the top of the food chain in, in Salvador Perez and Adley Rutschman. And you know, I was I was targeting Rutschman. He's the guy that I wanted for because this is a keeper league. And I was praying that nobody would put out Salvador Perez first because I wanted to have Rutschman go first and have all those other people. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the auction dynamics and everything. But if you have a guy that you like, you want him to go out first when there's another guy that is comparable so that people will kind of say, oh, well, if I don't get this guy, then I can go, you know, there's always somebody else out there. You know, this other guy's out there. I can wait for that guy. So, yeah, and, and I ended up overpaying, I think, like $8 over what I thought I should for Rutschman. But... For to me, for me, it was worth it, and I had you know good values in the keeper ranks, and was I would try and make it up later, as you said, um, you can you can do that sometimes and get better values later, especially if people are you know spending really really early and spending a lot early um, to just wait until things cool down. 
Exactly. It, 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 it depends on how hot the room is. If the room is hot and your guy's going out there, you know, it's either you go after him and you be really aggressive or you just let him pass and hope you, hopefully you have a plan B. Exactly. We'll talk later about more about nominations. But, yeah, in general, you're right that if there's two guys and you really want a certain guy, you want to get that nomination out because if the, the other guy comes out first, you don't know whether to bid on him or not because you wanted the other guy. So it is really, really important to get there. Now, um, you did mention the keeper inflation, and we had a question about that from Bill, who's asking exactly what you're saying. Is it okay to pay over? So keeper inflation is a real thing. And the definition of inflation is you have uh, more money and, and, and less value. And that's true. I mean, you know, if you have $260 to get 260 players, there's no inflation. But in a keeper league where people are kept under value, you've got less uh, less value to get and more money to get. So all the numbers are going to be multiplied by 10%, you know, on top. So that that's a real thing. That's not a – to me, that should really be baked into the price on top of everything. Now, we're talking about hot and cold auctions, and I just do, do want to get this concept out. And one of the things that I really look for in the very beginning of the auction is how hot or cold an auction is. And if I find that the prices – are really close to my values, I call that a cold auction. To me, that's the time to pounce and be aggressive early on on top. Um, in a hot auction where the top players are going seven, eight, nine dollars forget about it, I'm not talking about keepers, regular redraft, seven, eight, nine dollars on top, I call that a hot auction. I want to stay away. I don't feel the need to pay that market premium because that is throwing out money, and, and, and you'll never get it back at the bottom. You'll never get a seven dollar bargain somewhere uh, somewhere to make up just for that one. I'm okay with passing on all the top players, and I'll I'll take guys in the the third, fourth, fifth round to start my draft. I don't need to pay that. Um, that's one of the first things I do is I take the temperature of the auction and decide. The hotter it is, the more I stay away up top. The colder it is, the more aggressive. The hard part comes when it's somewhere in the middle, and you know you got to pick one to do. Uh, anything to add to that, Ruvain? Yeah, I think you have to really be careful with that because you really want some of those players. Some of those guys, they're, they're so tantalizing, but then you get into a bidding war. And this is where I had to, I wanted to disagree with you earlier when you said, you know, it's better to have a, par a partner online. I think it's better to have a partner when you're in person to hold you back from getting into one of those bidding wars. You can always you say to yourself... Roommate? You can always say, what's that extra dollar? What's that extra dollar? But that extra dollar turns out to be 6 or 7 or $8, and it screws up the rest of your plan for the rest of the thing. If you, if you have someone holding you back saying, you know what, Make sure, maybe we don't need to go after this. Maybe that extra dollar is not worth it. That helps because you, ha you, you, you want to wait till the room is cold. Usually the, co the room is cold after like the first three, four rounds. Usually things calm down. Last couple of years, though, I've noticed that the room stayed hot, and sometimes you have to overpay even a little bit, but you still should wait a little bit till things calm down. Folks, if you want that voice and you don't have a partner there, just have Ruvain in the back of your head saying, patience, yeah. patience. You know? Yeah, I, I do that all the every draft with you. I say, just, just wait, just wait, hold on, just wait. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about the temperature, hot and cold. In general, there's going to be parts in the auction that are hot and parts of the auction that are cold. Remember, it's a zero-sum game. If you did your values correctly, they all add up to the, the you know, the 3120 number or whatever, you know, your number is for your league. And there's going to be a section where it's cold. That's when you – where there's bargains, right? There's good, you, you want to play – 
in the area where there's bargains. You don't want to play in the area where there's not bargains. If the temperature is hot earlier, it's going to be colder later and vice versa. So the whole thing is timing when to come in. Uh, that, that to me is the story. Any, anything to add, Steve? Well, I will say that, yeah, when I have my spreadsheet set up and I have all the values and they add up to 3120 and I, I'm able to see, you know, a running total of what, you know, when I put the new prices in, how far above 3120 or below that the, the, uh, the, the total value is um, of, of the entire board. Um, that that's how I judge whether it's hot or whether it's it's running a, at a cooler temperature. And I'll I'll say one other thing that you guys were talking about. Um, you don't necessarily want to jump in when everybody else is overpaying by seven dollars for for players early. But if the market you know if the market and the auction is running hot, and somebody you know a, a star player kind of slows down right about where your bid values are. Um, it's not a bad time to go in and and get that player for value, um, you know, or for par uh, when things are going hot, because generally that's going to be, you know, one of your more productive players. So I wouldn't say to stay away completely, but if there's somebody that maybe not uh, be that's not going for as much as maybe they should where everybody else is going that uh, you could possibly jump in and, and get somebody for maybe a, a dollar more or $2 more than what you budgeted. Oh, 100%. I, that, is, that, that is the best when that happens. When everybody's going $7 over and you're getting a guy at par, oh, my God, that's, that's a slam dunk, uh, 100%. Uh, I totally agree on that. Um, Want to come to this topic? I got two questions in. Uh, Trevor asks, Draft budget allocation, how much do you like to spend on hitting versus pitching? And Jeremy asks the same thing. He also suggests that he says he usually uses 70-30, but should he use a little bit more t- tilted towards pitching? So, you know, the question is, what what do you do and you know, in terms of hitter versus pitcher uh, for, for yourself, uh, Steve? I start with 70-30, and what I tend to do is I find a lot of times – People go a little bit more on hitting, and I'm more interested in some of the pitchers that turn up. I, I feel like I get a little bit better values on pitchers, so I'm willing to maybe spend a little bit more than 30%, you know, maybe closer to 35% um, on pitching. But when I'm starting, you know, and, and putting everything and, and getting ready, um, I generally set it so that it's 70-30, and then adjust from there depending on how the room is going. I think there's a couple things at play here. One is what should you optically calculate your values to on your draft sheets if you're calculating auction values? And then the question is what should you actually buy, right? You don't necessarily have to buy the same distribution that's on the spreadsheet, right? Um, I think that to answer the question of what you should have on your sheets, optically you should – match whatever the room is. If your league is 65-35, you should have that as best you can on there. If your league is in a mono league and it's more 70-30, that's what you should do. If you're playing the NFBC and it's more 62-38, you should have your values do that. And the reason you should is because you want to be indifferent to bargains from a pitcher or hitter. If If you're setting your hitting... Um, percent much more than what the league is doing, the hitters are going to look like all bargains for you, and the pitchers are going to look terrible. 
Or if you did the reverse, if you had much more towards pitching, the pitching will look like bargains to you, and the hitting will look like overpays. You don't want that because you have to get both hitters and pitchers. So optically on your sheet, you want to balance that as best as you can to what the league is doing. And it's a guess, of course, but you know, make a good educated guess. As far as what you should actually get, two things I'll say is, one, if you happen to be better than at pitching than hitting— Maybe tilt your values a little bit more or get your distribution a little bit more towards the hitting because, well, you know, you're better at the pitching, so maybe you need a little bit more help on the hitting. So that's one adjustment. The other thing I'd say is looking at research this year, the Birchwood brothers put together some research uh, on Fangraphs a couple weeks ago. They saw that the teams that did better in the NFBC overall were teams that budgeted much more to pitching as a percent of their of their uh, allocation than the hitting, right? They instead of going sixty five thirty five, they actually went closer to sixty forty. So I would say in deeper leagues, in overall contests, you want to be a little bit more pitching these days. With with pitching on the waiver wire being much crappier this year, I think that you should actually have your plan closer to 60-40. Optically, do what the room does, but have your plan a little bit more that way. Especially this year. This year, if you look at the bottom of the player pool, the pitchers, you start looking at those names and you're thinking, wait, I don't want any of these people on my roster. They're just going to hurt me. You'd want to spend more money on pitching. So it makes more sense to try to tilt it a little more toward pitching. The hitting bargains you'll get because the hitting, the hitters, actually, the, if you look at the bottom of the player pool in the hitters you can get there are more bargains to be had later on in the hitting pool and i and you'd probably be more comfortable with some of those hitters in later on as opposed to the pitchers later on because just think about it if you're not comfortable with the pitchers at the bottom of the player player pool and you have to get those pitchers during the draft just think of what you have to go through fab later in the season to try to replace those guys yeah and by the way this says nothing about the distribution of players within the pitching or within the hitting you know, we're just talking about the total amount. You might want to do more stars and scrubs or not. And while we're talking about stars and scrubs versus spread the risk, I, I got a question from UConn, and he asks, which do you prefer? What's your answer, Steve? What, what do you do? Uh, what do you tend to do, I should say? I'm, I'm more of a spread the risk kind of person. Um, I, I, I like the ability to pivot, uh, to change strategies, and if you have a nice, even base, you're able to do that much easier than if you have, you know, concentrated in, you know, your, your categories in a, a smaller subset of star players. So I, I'm a, I'm a firm spread the risk kind of guy. And I, you know, when I've tried to do stars and scrubs, you know, even on purpose, uh, a lot of times it seems like it has not worked out well for me. So uh, I, I do what you know, do what you're good at, and uh, I think for me it's spreading the risk. And especially mono leagues, you need to tilt tilt more to that. Ruvain, I I know that you're closer to to spread the risk. Is that right? Hundred percent. But there's a, there's a big but here. Last year in our NFPC auction, we saw we wanted to go middle, middle, middle. We wanted to spread the risk. That was the idea. But we took a temperature of the room, and it seemed like three, four other people were doing the exact same thing. So if that happens, that'll clean out all the bargains. There are not going to be that many bargains in the middle, and you may have to start tilting a little bit towards stars and scrubs. And that's what we did a little bit, and it didn't actually work out. We tried to pivot a little bit during the middle of the draft. It didn't work out. So I think spreading the risk is still the way to go, even if you have to fight and even if you have to pay for those guys. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to do more spread the risk, but I think you should always be prepared to do either. Um, you know, you should have a plan for getting what would happen if I bought a higher-valued player, what would happen if I bought a, two higher-valued players. You should be prepared to play either way. Uh, tendencies, the I think the values come more by spread the risk, which is why I gravitate towards that. But, you know, different th- things happen. I know in labor when I played... Um, I think I gravitate a little bit more towards uh, Stars and Scrubs. Uh, I had Jeff Zimmerman in, in, in a bunch of those, and, and he do, he sops up some more in the middle, so I went a little bit more. In Tout Wars, I do completely spread, or I, I should say I did completely spread the risk. Let's talk some in-draft adjustments. Obviously, you're going through your auction, and sometimes things go the right way or what you've planned for. Sometimes it doesn't. Hopefully it goes more the way that you wanted, then not. Um, but what are some adjustments that you do, Steve, or you find yourself doing during auctions? Well, I, I like to keep um, a, a running total of where I stand in terms of the category stats. So that requires having a set of projections. And once you know you you purchase a player, you roster a player, you kind of drop those stats into your master sheet. Um, so I'm constantly looking at where I am, uh, how many you know steals I need to get where I want to be, how many saves I need, um, how much power I have, uh, and basically in the in the middle of the draft, I'm always kind of recalibrating and recalculating to see you know where I'm I'm lagging and where I may have a little bit of a surplus. So. Those are the the adjustments that I make, and obviously, you know, you want to keep tabs on if you think a, a particular position is deep or thin. You know where those uh, you know remaining players are, how many of them are there, and and how you know, much of a priority you need to make of that to, to get your roster to fill out. So it's it's a constant state of adjustment. Um, mostly, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm looking at what my roster is and what, what other players are available, um, more so than I'm looking at the builds that other people are, are making um, on their own. Ruben, what are you doing in, in the middle of auctions to adjust? Managing the money, making sure the moving moving the money around because if you overpay for a hitter, you have to sometimes take some money out of the hitting and move it to pitching or vice versa. You got to do something like that. So I'm always making sure the money is allocated correctly for hitting and pitching because I think you need to have that you have you have to hit that certain amount of value for each p- pitching and hitting. So if you go over in one spot, if you overpay for a hitter, that means that you're going to be losing money maybe hypothetically in pitching just because you don't you have to take the money out of pitching to go into hitting so you have to really manage what's going on and watch what other teams are doing and how they're spending their money and try to manage your money accordingly i know that's what we do as a team i'm the one managing the money and you're managing the stats yeah i'm looking more at the players and what they're worth i mean theoretically player prices should change dynamically during the auction i my own draft draft software does that i bet you know and to, to to just visualize the concept suppose you've just drafted John Birdie. Hey, Steve, you just drafted John Birdie in our mock auction we did, right? (laughs) Uh, Suppose you've got Birdie and you've got Adalberto Mondesi that you thought you had a good price. What should the value of another stolen base player be? What should Tommy Edmonds value to you? It should be not as appealing to buy him, being that you've just bought yourself 60 steals or whatever you've done. 
So exactly. theoretically, yeah, theoretically, that player should be worth less to you, and a power player should be worth more. So theoretically, you should be adjusting based on your categorical needs and purchases so far, right? Not easier said than done, but just realize that that is there. Um, and I, I look for market premiums and see, you know, what positions are cheaper and more expensive and adjust pricing and expectations there. Um, talking about draft inflation, a lot of people have asked about that um, in the mailbag. How do you handle draft inflation, Steve? And I got to tell you that um, I don't really believe it's there, or at least I don't account for it. Um, I just know, based on what I was talking about earlier with taking the temperatures, that there's ebbs and flows. There's hot parts and cold parts. And if players are hot earlier, so they're inflated, and so it'll be deflating you know, at the end. I just have a gut feel of myself, and I, I've done so many of these that I know. I don't track in-draft inflation, and it really, a value is a value. It's a zero-sum game. Different than keeper inflation, because uh, that's a real thing. But do you, do you handle or track that at all? No, when I, when I think of in-draft inflation, I think of the temperature of the room. I, those, right, to me, right, are pretty right. much synonymous. And so, you know, I've got my totals of, of what's been spent so far and the projections of, you know, how that affects the, the total amount of money that's available. So that's what I look at. And, you know, when the number goes way above what it should be, then it seems to me most of the time that's the time to back off and, and wait for it to cool down. We're talking with Steve Gardner here at our auction strategy podcast extravaganza, just pure strategy today, and hope you guys are all enjoying this. And we're going to talk about nomination strategies. And a lot of people poo-poo this, and they say, yeah, just throw somebody out there or put some guy out early who we don't like or whatever. Um, I think that nomination is very, very important uh, to do, and it really uh, enables you to control the auction a certain way to get information out uh, and so on and so forth. To me, you have a lot of different pressures, nomination pressures during the auction. Do you need an information about a player? Just as Steve was saying earlier, I, I like there's two guys I like, one guy I like more. I, I want to get that guy out first because because I, I don't want the other guy nominated or my price will go up, right? If there's a guy that you really need to know about, you really fits your roster, that's a pressure to nominate them. There's also pressure of a player getting artificially inflated because of the economics of the room. We call it the economic box where you have a player who's maybe, let's say he's a $10 player, and there's nobody in that category uh, up until $5, just sitting there, Somebody, nobody, for, nobody remembered to nominate him. That guy's price is very high. So if you wanted that player, you have to nominate him before he gets to that economic box and artificially inflates the price because of the dynamics of the room. There's also pressures in terms of how much money you have. If you have a lot of money in the auction compared to everybody else, you might be overpaying for players. You don't want to get to that position, so you might want to nominate more players you want, as opposed to when you have just spent a lot of money and you're down low on funds, you probably don't want to nominate players that you want because you, you want to th get money off the board, right? You, you want to be economically on par with everybody else in the room so that you have the same uh, purchasing power as everybody else. Right, so there's a lot of, of things at play there, um, and I think that it's very important to realize that in and of itself. So, Steve, anything to add to that? And what are you thinking of in the room when you're coming to your uh, nomination? All right, Steve, you're the next guy to nominate. Who who's up for bid, and how do you determine that? 
Well, I would say roughly three out of every four players that I nominate, I probably am not going to get um, and don't have really much interest in because I want to see what other people value these players at and I want to see them spend on these players a lot of the times. So I'll throw out players that perhaps I'm not really high on, but everybody else may be. Um, you know, if, if I'm lower on somebody than, than consensus, those are the players I'll throw out because I know I'm not going to get them anyway, and I want to have that money off the table uh, as soon as possible. So that said... The fourth one out of uh, out of the group of four that I do have interest in, I think that keeps the rest of the room on their toes so they know that I'm not just throwing out players that I have no intention of getting. And I'll use that to test, as you were saying, Ariel, um, to see where that particular player, um, you know, where the, if that's a dividing line between, you know, these players that may deserve to go for a higher amount or these players deserve to go for a lower amount. Uh, you know, for an example, throwing out, say, Felix Bautista, for instance, if he's one of the first closers, you know, he's not certainly in the upper elite tier, but he's certainly not uh, a guy that you wouldn't you know, mind having as a, as a closer, very talented and all of that could, you know, could have 30 saves this year. So just to get an idea of what the market is like, because a lot of times, I've found once a player, you know, has established a price, everybody sort of works in relation to what's already been established, uh, you know, and and is there in stone. So if a player should be better than Felix Batista, then they'll go above whatever he sold for, you know, sixteen dollars or whatever. Then you know, there's that artificial line that don't want to cross um, or they will cross to go for another player. It, it's just a way to kind of set some limits on things. And especially if you already have a closer or something like that, um, it's it's much, much more helpful as well. Yeah, that's interesting advice there, uh, setting the getting a feel for the market by doing that. I, I think for me, I'm, I'm a little bit more in the camp, in the camp of you should be putting more nominations to player that you're interested in. Um, the Ruvain, I mean, you, you do it with me. I think we're a little bit closer the other way, right? Yeah, we, we want to throw out a player in a group of, let's say you want a top, top pitcher. We'll throw out someone in the top group that we're comfortable with, that we know we have an idea what the price is going to be, and we throw it out there, we'll see what it is. If it doesn't go where we want, fine. There's still a whole bunch of other uh, players in that group. It also depends when you're nominating, because you have to, you have to, when we go into a draft, both you and me, Ariel, we look at our draft and we actually plan out who we're going to nominate for the first three, four rounds. We want to know. We want to be able to control the room by our nominations. If you can, let's say one year we decided we're going to throw out all the speed guys. We want to Put a, a premium on speeds. Let's say you wanted to, you know, throw out a guy, you throw out a, a starting pitcher because you want to know how this tier of starting pitchers are going to go, or maybe you can get a guy cheaper on that tier. Then throw out a guy at the bottom part of the tier that you're comfortable with. Then that's perfectly fine. That's that's something you you need to learn something. You don't just throw someone out just for the heck of getting money off the board, especially early on. Later on, it's different. Later on, you can throw out and just try to get off the highest ADP guy, the highest guy that you think is going to go for the most money. 
to get more money off the board. But I think you have to have a plan of who you're going to nominate, at least the first couple of rounds. So then that way, okay, so you know what? First couple of rounds, you may end up buying the guys that you want on on that on those levels, but you at least have a basis. You'll know what's going on. You'll have what you want ready. You'll have a base, and you can work from there. Yeah, and it's funny you said how you know you can control a room, and people are like, "Well, just one nomination. How do you control a room?" And it's funny, um, you know, Steve and I was just before this doing a mock draft together, and I always noticed. You ever notice there's runs, there's closer runs, there's catcher runs. Like somebody picks a catcher, and then three out of the next five picks are catchers, right? We, we had that. Um, that goes because people are mentally thinking. You put out a catcher, oh crap, I need to look at catchers. So they go to the list of catchers and say, hmm, who do I want? Yep, sounds about right that I need him now. Ding. That happens in auctions. When you throw out a catcher, a lot of times the next nomination is also going to be a catcher because they're thinking about catchers. You shift to closers, all of a sudden four out of the next six picks are closers. Happens a lot. And so you can control the tempo by just switching the category that you're nominating. If you think that, oh, goodness, I need to get off this. I, I need them to nominate another category. Switch it to an interesting category that people are going to think about. And all of a sudden, people are going to nominate on and on and on. Uh, very interesting point there. Um, should you nominate players from a position that you already have if you're trying to get money off the board, question, and I think the answer is absolutely yes. You guys agree with that, right? Do it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. You have no—you you bought a high price for a spaceman. I, I, I got Freddie Freeman. You don't need Vlad. Of course, nominate Vlad for sure. Or, or what you can do is if you have a top flight first baseman and you see that the that there are one or two first basemen up there that are still left, if you nominate someone below, you can actually create what, what we the economic box and make those two higher ones worth more. And that's how you can actually cause in draft inflation. That's how you can actually you know control the room. Yeah, it's called the Swiss cheese nomination. If it's a category that you don't want, don't nominate the highest guy. Nominate the second or third highest guy because then the highest guy is going to go for even more than they should have, and you've just extracted another $3 from the room for nothing, right? That's really, really a good thing to do. I uh, never knew that was what it was called. Well, uh, that's because I made it up just now. So. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, now yeah. it's our secret. Yep, <laughs> the Swiss cheese nomination. And the podcast audience's secret. Yeah. Yes, just us know that. We've also talked in the past about the Joey Votto nomination, and that's because we a couple years ago there was a player named Joey Votto, who you might know, who uh, went for like a dollar in leagues, but our projections show that he was worth $8. Now, we didn't really want to get Joey Votto. I don't know. I'd rather have a different corner infielder, but you know, my the math guy in me says – I don't want to leave such a bargain out there, a $7 bargain. So what do you do? You nominate him earlier. And when you nominate a guy like that earlier in the auction, he won't go for one. He'll go for three or four. All right, so the guy's getting a 3 or $4 bargain. He's not getting a 7 You've just collapsed the return on investment that you didn't want anything to be a part of. And, and uh, that's another good use of a nomination. Not too early, but early, much earlier than the guy would go. That's called the Joey Votto nomination. Let's talk about money management. Do you look, Steve, to pace yourself during the auction? Uh, meaning, you know, oh, uh, you know, oh, my goodness, I'm buying too many players. I got to slow down. Or, oh, goodness, I don't have enough players. I got to speed up. Are you looking at that at all? Or is maybe you're just, you know, you, you've done this so many times, you just get a feel for everything. I, I do, um, because a lot of times I feel like I'm overly aggressive early, and I will get 
more than you know one or two guys in the first couple of rounds and feel like I'm spending too much early and have to back off a little bit and and you know kind of physically restrain myself from bidding too much uh, for fear of you know not having any money for the middle and the end game. So yeah, I, I that's something that I have to constantly be aware of because I, I like to see a value, a player that I like. You know, if he's if he's at my number, maybe a dollar or so below, um, I, it's it's hard to resist jumping in and and getting uh, you know your feet wet and and enjoying it yourself. So I, I do I do have to pace myself sometimes. Ruvain, um do you enjoy having the hammer at the end? Is that important to you or doesn't matter? I mean, it does help, especially if you think you're weak in one area. Like if you're if you have the hammer and you're weak in pitching, then you can gobble up all the pitchers you need to in, before they really drop off, or vice or vice versa. If you're weak in hitting, you can gobble up all those things, all those players as well. But the thing is, you don't need the hammer to win. If you follow your plan and you're able to, to stick to the plan, then you should be able to manage your money okay. You should be pacing yourself okay. Um, and just like in poker, you can't be in every single hand you have to wait you have to wait you have to wait and sometimes the waiting will get you the hammer but you don't need the hammer unless you're going after a certain player at the end of the draft if you think that this player is going very late you think he's going to be a great bargain and you want to have that money for that one player that's fine but otherwise i don't see a need for that so let's talk a little bit about bidding and what you should be bidding on players because that's what most of the time that you're actually doing in the auction so question is the frequency Steve, how often should you bid on players, right? You're not going to bid on every single player, but should you bid on quite a few players or should you wait, let the auction come to you and only bid on a select players? What do you do? No, I like to be involved in, in most of them, um, especially if the bidding is not going you know, quickly and you want to kind of get the tempo up a little bit. Um, I like to do that. And I will be, I will be in on most of the players um it it seems like or at least it feels like i'm ready to bid on most of them but um yeah it's a lot of times i'll just kind of fuel the process along and then the people who are really interested are the ones that kind of kind of take it away but i i don't like to see good value players sitting there you know for five and six dollars i will jump in if i feel like you know, somebody's going to get uh, a, an unexpected bargain. I like to bid on like 80% of the players. Um, I want people to hear my voice because if you hear me bidding on every single player, you won't know or won't be conscious of who I really want and who I don't want because I'm just bidding on everybody. Uh, I think that we're not as good at faking it, so you might as well disguise it with volume. With Ruben? self-restraint, with self-restraint. You can bid on every player, <laughs> but don't do that if you have two catchers, a two-catcher league, and you're bidding <laughs> on a third catcher, and you get stuck with a third catcher. So, yes, you can bid on everybody, but there has to be some self-restraint with it. It also changes things up. It it, it masks what's going on. You People don't know who you're really necessarily going after, and you may end up getting a bargain out of, out of a player you may not weren't, you weren't expecting, and sometimes it falls into your lap, and that can happen also. I mean, that catcher thing happened once, you know. Uh, it, once, yes, once. and it happened, and we ended up with three catchers, and we ended up rostering them for quite a while, and we're not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, Lesson that was a mistake, learned, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, on to bidding. Should you price enforce? Tricky because you might it might backfire. But theoretically, of course, you should price enforce if you know the next guy is gonna bid more and you don't want the guy. What's your take on that, Steve? I do, um, and uh, occasionally. I will go a little bit too far and get stuck with a guy that maybe I wouldn't have bid as much on. But, you know, part of part of the auction dynamic is you want to not only get your team the way that you want it, but you want to force other people out of their comfort zone. And uh, that's that's one way to do it. And so for me, the times when I've been able to get people to go an extra $2 or an extra $4. Um, I feel like it's been beneficial to me to make them work that much harder so that it makes things a little bit easier for me. So yeah, I will I will be in, I will price enforce, um, and occasionally I will get caught doing it. Anything to add, Ruby? Yes, price enforcing is not just on bidding, it's also on nominating. You can price enforce just like we mentioned before about nominating someone earlier. That price enforces that certain player so that player doesn't go for a certain price. So that's doing it that way also. So it's not just the bidding, it's also how you nominate and how you play the whole game. Yeah, I mean, if you know how to do it correctly, you should be price enforcing. Never price enforce a player that you can't afford, right, or will completely screw up your plan. But sure, if it's, all right... I guess I'll take that guy. Sure, you should definitely give it a try. And with poker, look look at the tells in the room. See when you know a guy is going to bid. Um, I will say, though, that um, uh, it's sometimes price enforcing is sort of uh, makes me feel good. Uh, or, or, or Not me particularly, but it makes you feel good in that, well, you weren't sure about a player. Uh, I'll bid up $1, and then the guy goes over. Well, thank God I bid then. I was the, It was the right decision, right? It, it could be a scenario where, oh, you feel good about yourself. Oh, the guy bid over. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it's psychologically and helpful to you at a certain level as well. Okay, next question. What should you use as a starting bid, Steve? I vary them. Um, obviously, it doesn't make any sense to start Vlad Guerrero Jr. at $1. Um, I generally, with elite players, um, because I want to see the auction move, I think I, I feel like if it's at a good pace that I'm comfortable with, that benefits me. So I'll start you know, the upper tier players at $10, at $15, at $12, something along those lines and just get the pace going. The players in the middle, I'm not gonna start that high, maybe at two, maybe three or something like that. And then later on, obviously, you start at one and and hope you get a bargain sometimes and if if you don't have anybody else bidding. But um, but yeah, I I think you vary it a little bit and the more you can, you know, keep from being predictable, I think the, the better it is. I agree with the keep predicting, but I would say instead of varying it, I like making the same bid. $18, you'll just hear me the same number the entire auction on anybody over $25. $18, $18, you just don't know if I'm in the guy or not. I'm not varying it at all, but I'm just throwing it out like that so you can't know what I'm doing. Later in the auction, four, 
four. Everything's going to be four. You just hear that monotonous tone of the same number. It helps with the uh, it helps with the hip hypnotization or whatever the the now the now form of the word is. Um, and I, I I agree with that, except in the in the, in the one instance when you want to try to freeze the room, and when you try to throw out that freeze bid, that's not that commonly done. It doesn't always work, but sometimes if you keep mesmerizing someone with the same bid over and over, you say 18, 18, 18, and all of a sudden you throw a guy out there, twenty six, and the room is silent. That's 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 when you know that 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 those biddings, those nominations worked. Yeah, the the giving the same exact number helps if you want to do a freeze bid. And you do want to do a freeze bid very sparingly, once or twice in an auction. And having that monotonous number helps. 18, 18, all of a sudden, 26. It, people get confused. What? I was expecting an 18. And they don't have time to think. Going once, going twice, and it's your player. Uh, that has worked in the past, for sure. Uh, do you agree with that, Steve? Um, to some degree. I, I, will, I will say, um, not to give away any secrets, but... If somebody bids 26, you know, does a jump bid or something like that to try and freeze the room, in my experience, they're going to set a number that's maybe $2 below their max, generally, because they'll throw the bid out there, hope to get it at a $2 discount, and then if somebody should happen to bid them up, they'll bid one more time, and that's it. And so that's kind of what I watch for if somebody makes a jump bid, you know, are they willing to go one more? And if I'm willing to go beyond that, then I will engage with them, you know, maybe jump bid myself. That's another, you know, tr tactic you could use. If somebody goes to 26, you go to 28, you know, are they going to go to 29 if 28 was their number? Um, that, that's just another way to kind of, you know, do the, the mental dance that you need to and, and keep the other folks off guard. Yeah, you know, I'm funny with the plus two bids, like from 26 to 28. It's funny, I, I don't think they work all the time. They work like half the time. But I do say, though, that it it's another one of those makes you feel better, right? If you say, well, 26, should I go to 27 or should I go to 28? Oh, I'll just say 28. And if the guy goes 29, you think to yourself, well, thank God. I, I At least I jumped <laughs> it that much and whatever. Uh, but if you win him at 28, then you say, oh, great, I jumped him and it worked. So it's a win-win situation, right? So <laughs> makes you feel better. And especially, especially, let's say you have the bid of twenty-six, and you let's say you jump to twenty-nine. Very few people, unless they really are the player, they'll jump to thirty just because that number thirty means something, as opposed to still being in the twenties. You're getting a thirty-dollar player for a player maybe valued at twenty-eight or twenty-seven. So I actually disagree with that. I've actually done some research that the nines trick, bidding on the nines, actually does not work. But what works actually more is the zeros. Like going to actually 30, people are less inclined to go from 30 to 31. Like I've actually studied this, and it's not a big effect, but the effect is at the zeros, not at the nines, actually. But you're right. The concept the concept's correct. Just look back at, you know, at previous drafts. Yeah. Um, you can see where, where did the bidding end. Um, did it, you know, was it 30? Was it 29? Was it 31? You know, how many times does it go to 31? That's a, or 21. That's, that'd be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I, and I've done that. There is a, there is a lot fewer elevens than there are tens, and you'll you'll actually find that to be true. So yes, if you wanted to jump a bid, I would say go to the zeros if you want to win it. That's not just on the off chance that it works. It works a little bit more of the time than not. 
Um, all right, last thing about the bidding is uh, actually uh, two more things. One is timing of bids. You know, because uh, you were talking earlier about the online, you don't want to wait till it goes going once, going twice, because it can be locked out. But what is the right time to place a bid? on a player, a player that you want, a player you don't want? Like, do you wait very often or do you go right away? How, how do you work that, Steve? I generally will go if I'm, if, if it, it's a prolonged bidding, you know, if we're going 28, 29, 30, I will generally bid rapidly. Um, and then, you know, just to, to sort of indicate, yes, I'm serious here. I, I, this is a player that I am interested in and I am serious and make the other person, you know, if they're going to price enforce, you know, let them know, all right, go ahead. You know, this is, this is a showdown. Um, generally I will do that. Um, other times, maybe if I'm not so sure, or if I'm trying to feel the other person out to see how serious they are, I'll wait toward the end of the going once, going twice, but generally don't do that. Moving, what are your thoughts? Uh, first of all, online, different beast. Never wait to the very end because you can get screwed. You end up paying $2 extra for another player, so don't do that online. There's, there's no there's no point. If you have a number you want to get to, there's no reason why online, if you're, doing, if you're doing an auction online, to just put the bid out there. You either got it or you don't got it. There's no reason to wait. But in person... Uh, you, it, it's it's a matter of how the room is going. If if you if you see a lot of people getting into bidding wars, then you may want to be more aggressive and and make the bid right away. But a lot of times, sometimes if you say that go here the going once, going twice, and you bid it at the end, it can be a little bit deflating for that person who thought they were going to get for their player at that at that price. But if you see that you waited to the end and he bid right away, then bid a number right away right after that because strategically you're. Th the guy you're bidding against will say, you know what, this person really wants this player. Do I want to get into a bidding war with them? That's where it's important to know who the person is in your room, in your league that you're bidding against because different people take that differently and uh, the same tactic doesn't necessarily work you know, with everyone. Yeah, totally. It definitely depends on the person. I, in general, I kind of like bidding quicker than later and the reason is i i know the values that i think of the person and i know what i need to buy the player at i want to give the other people less time to think right and the way to do that is you just bid fast you know the number four five seven um let them not think if they have a number in mind they'll do it anyways I don't want them to think, oh, you know what? I really do need that player. I really don't. Should I, is there somebody else I want later? I don't know. I don't want them thinking. I want them making a snap decision right away. So I'll try not to to give them that, and I'll try to go quicker. Plus, it also makes the auction go quicker to bid quicker. Um, so, you know, uh, you can drag it out. But uh, I, that, that's my take on that. And the last question I have is $2 bids. A lot of times you want to start off a player at 2 especially later on with some low-level catchers, do you think that $2 bids are good? Because the strategy, of course, is you start out two. Well, I'll, if somebody was going to bid, if you bid one, well, maybe they'll go to two, but I'm not paying $3 for that player, right? Do you see that, that working a lot? Does that work for you, Steve? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I try and when I get to the end game, have an average of, you know, if I have three slots to fill, 
to have $6 to be able to do that because it gives you the opportunity. Number one, if somebody throws somebody out for a dollar that you like, you can jump on top of that and go for two. Um, and throwing that out there, I think psychologically, yes, in the end game where every dollar is precious, if you're able to go two and open the nomination at that, um, it gives you a tremendous psychological advantage and probably eliminates half the room from challenging you. Definitely. So definitely a good idea. That's why having the $2 hammer at the end works. I got to tell you, last year in Tout Wars, wish I had that extra dollar because in Tout Wars, Shohei Otani is two different people. It's a pitcher and a hitter. And in the draft software that we were in, there was no split. It was just one player. And you had to make up some phony baloney guy who, you know, was not going to play. We threw out Bartolo Colon. Um there, hoping I'd sneak that one in for a dollar, but somebody had the two dollars, and I almost got a dollar. Shohei Otani, the pitcher, uh, and it was a points league, so pitchers mattered more. So uh, that two dollars very helpful. Now I agree with everything you said, except when people try to do the two or two dollar bid or a three dollar bid earlier on, they try to quote unquote sneak a guy through earlier on. Like let's say they want to get a two dollar catcher, or they want to try to go after a two dollar closer or a three dollar closer earlier. I haven't really seen that work that much, and it's probably safer to hold off on those 2 or $3 freeze bids for, let's say, a, uh, a prospective closer or a catcher until later on because when people have more money, they'd be more willing to spend that extra dollar to get that player. Oh, yeah, that's a good question, actually, about sneaking players through. Do you ever do that, uh, Steve? You know, you take a very low-level player that you want and just try to sneak them through a dollar or two somewhere in the middle of an auction. I, I tend not to do that. Do you do that? I've never been successful in doing right. that there the always exactly. somebody comes in and, and bids me up on it and uh, i get too scared and i back off yeah I, I agree doesn't work for me all right well we've covered quite a lot of stuff and hopefully we've given you the listener a lot of good tips and tricks and strategy on on how to do it did we miss anything guys uh anything else to add about auctions bidding strategy values nominations jokes anything <laughs> uh, more jokes more jokes um <laughs> Uh, otherwise, I think we've we've done a great job of, of hitting all the highlights. And I'm sure we'll hear about it. And I'm sure we'll hear about it if we missed anything also. So don't worry about that. Yeah, no, we tried to answer a lot of that questions that came in on the mailbag. And hopefully, hopefully we did that. Um, no, this was this was a really, really good show. And um, you might want to play it twice to, to get all the strategy, you know, more than once, just it also helps us with with the, the listens. If you you know just play it twice, download it. Tell you know give it give it to uh, give it to somebody else in your family. Tell them to download on their on their phone. Just beef up the numbers for us. That that, that helps. So uh, yeah, you do that. Well, the goal the goal is the goal is to help people do better in their auctions. So yeah. if you need <laughs> yes. to download it and listen to it twice, then that's you know that's perfectly fine. Just do it that way also. But the main thing is to try to get better and to learn how to do it because auctions. You know they're more they're more common in in I think there's more common in in football and stuff like and and other sports but baseball auctions this is the, the the I think this is I love the auctions much more than doing the snake draft I think it's more pure I think it's it's being the quote unquote GM because you can build your team the way it is and this is this is what we did when we grew when we grew up and this is you know this is what we love and we want to try to help you and try to better you as a fantasy player. All right. Anyways, uh, thank you, Steve. This was a fantastic episode. Really. Uh, just just absolutely great, and you were the perfect person to bring on the show. So thank you so much for, for, for coming on. I appreciate the invite. Loved every minute of it, and I learned about the Swiss cheese nomination. So folks uh, out there, you know, 
Don't don't say we didn't give you something really really new. There you go. All right. Uh, anything going on with you? Uh, you got labor drafts coming up. Uh, what, what else are you working on? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's taking up the bulk of my time now. Uh, the mixed labor draft comes on Tuesday the 21st. Um, so that's really, really soon. And then the labor auctions uh, on Friday, March 3rd is the NL. Uh, March 4th, Saturday is the AL. And March 5th, Sunday is the mixed labor auctions at the baseball hq first pitch florida conference so uh can't wait for those amazing same here uh Ruvain, how about you what what's going on with you you can follow me on twitter at mlb injury guru where i tweet out injury updates as they come there was no injury update on this episode because it was all strategy however please keep track of the world baseball classic you will learn about injuries that you may not have heard about meaning like nestor cortez having a hamstring strain or something like that these things will come up and watch for injuries during the course of the world baseball classic as well i also have a weekly article in season on rotoballer discussing all the injuries and the next player up and i'm ariel cohen you can find my work over at fangraphs over at rotoballer atc projections are up um, there was not an update this week. There's a lull of news right, from when we refine projections until spring training opens up. So not much, very minor stuff, but you'll see it updated probably a week from now over the President's Day weekend uh, and more frequent as we go on into the, uh, into the spring training season. Uh, so uh, look for that. And, uh, of course, follow me on Twitter at ATCNY, and you can listen to our podcast here, the Beat the Shift podcast, each and every week, you know the station because you're listening to it now. Uh, and that's pretty much it. All right. Once again, thank you so much to Steve Gardner for joining the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.